I call to God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. God will give ear and humble them, he who is enthroned from of old, Selah, because they do not change and do not fear God. Those are verses 16 to 19 of Psalm 55, which is the psalm appointed for today, Saturday, January the 29th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our look at the prophecies of Isaiah. Today, we're in the 51st chapter, the first eight verses. We're also looking at Galatians 3, verses 23 to 29, and the Gospel according to Mark, the seventh chapter, the first 23 verses. So we're continuing to to look at these messianic prophecies and the call to God's people to be truly God's people, <laughs> which is to act in accordance with what they believe. That what they the covenant that He has made requires certain things of His people, because what He wants is a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. And so, if we're to be that holy nation in the kingdom of priests, that's what it was said that that. That's what he said they were to be in Exodus. But it's also, Peter says, it's the same covenant, and it requires the same things. And it requires us now to join in being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But we do it in a different way because we have the Spirit of God. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, then you've been given his Spirit to lead you into all truth. And that truth is not just an intellectual proposition. It's more than that. To lead you into all truth is to lead you into living in accordance with the truth. The way you show that you truly believe these things is your life lived in accordance with what you believe to be true. So that's important. He says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. So the first one might have been a metaphor, but then he clears it up. (laughs) If you want to know which rock from which you were hewn and the quarry from which you were dug, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. So that's exactly what did happen, right? I mean, he's promised progeny, and and not just progeny, but countless progeny. And you've probably heard me tell this before, but one of the beliefs uh, about what happens in the end times is is that the— that all of Israel, this is a Jewish belief, sorry, I should have been clear about that. What, what they believe happens in the end is, is that all the Jews from all over the world are gathered together in Jerusalem for the resurrection. So they're all resurrected. And then the last people to be resurrected are actually, in Jewish belief, it's Abraham and Sarah. And because and the reason they're, res, they're brought last is because the first thing they see in the new world is the fullness of God's promise about these countless descendants. And so that that's the point, is to say, okay, what happened here? And, and it's, yes, he took one and made countless descendants. For the Lord comforts Zion, he comforts all her waste places, and he makes her wilderness like Eden. In other words, God's going to restore greater than. It's like when he took them out of the wilderness and put them into a land flowing with milk and honey. It's, it's like he took them out of Egypt and did that as well. But along the way, you get these people, remember, who, who are complaining. It's, oh, remember how good we had it in Egypt. We had all this food, and now we have this manna is all we get. And so the, 
that that's speaking to God's going to make this land flowing with milk and honey. You've got to get there, but you've got to want it badly enough to trust God to do it. And they didn't. And so they get stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. And so now what he's saying is, is that he's going to make the wilderness places in Israel like Eden, productive ground, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. And then he continues to speak. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the people. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands, those are outside of Israel. The coastlands hope for me and wait for my arm. They wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment. And they who dwell in it will be like... will die in like manner, but my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. And so the, the, the point of that is to sort of go back to Ecclesiastes, where Solomon goes through, have you got wealth? Well, that, that's going to not go to, that won't continue with you into the afterlife. All the things you're thinking about won't continue with you into the afterlife. Egyptian burial practices, for instance, the stuff that's put into the pyramids, that's based in the belief that that you're passing from this life into the next life, but the next life is exactly like this life, and therefore you'll need all the same things in the next life that you needed in this life. And so what they did was they put all the stuff they would need into the pyramid to make sure they were well provisioned for the journey. And what God's saying is, no, this stuff all passes away. And that's exactly Solomon's argument in Ecclesiastes. Stop looking to the things of the earth and to the things of the heaven. Look above and beyond the sun, and there are to be found the things that are eternal, the things, therefore, that you should set your store upon. And it's the same teaching that Jesus does when he talks about the kingdom. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. It's like a pearl of great price. It's these things that transcend earth. And that's what God's saying here is my salvation will be forever. Those things are going to pass away. My salvation is forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Anything you trust in of earth will ultimately let you down because it won't give you eternal life. He said, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. And it's the same message that Jesus will give when he says, don't fear those who can only harm the body. Nope, fear the one who can harm the body and also has the power to put the soul into hell. So, And it's also this thing about... The um, don't fear the reproach of man, nor to be dismayed at their revilings. Jesus goes beyond that even. And he says, no, 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 no. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in that reviling and persecution. You're blessed if people do that. So don't be upset or feared or dismayed because of that. No, no, no. Rejoice in that because you're blessed to be counted worthy to be reviled and persecuted. And what it says is is that they hate the Spirit of God in you in the same way they hated it in Him. So they hate the Spirit of God in you, and therefore they're going to say these things about you. And what, what Isaiah says, you can hear the voice of Jesus, is to say, don't worry about that stuff. Don't worry about that. What, you're, what it means is you're displaying God's glory and His righteousness to the world, and the world hates that. In the Gospel, 
we see that same thing because what we see among the Jews here, the Pharisees and the scribes particularly, is, is that they're defining righteousness in their own way. They're taking something that's a small principle and making it the principle. And that's a danger always to God's people. We can become legalists by taking a small thing and magnifying that small thing and making it the thing. And that's exactly the problem in legalism. Is, is that, that it takes a small principle and makes it the largest principle. It makes it the, the organizing principle. And, and that Paul fought so hard against making legalism and the law the organizing principle. He says there's one organizing principle, and that's Jesus. Period. End of sentence. And so in the, here we see this confrontation of grace and law smashing into one another here and we're seeing people who make mountains out of molehills so we get now when the pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from jerusalem they saw some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled that is unwashed now here's what you need to know i did this thing about a month ago if you want to go back and look at the 27th of december what you will hear is it is my podcast about the talmud and what it is where it came from all that kind of stuff well here's something to know in the talmud hand washing is mentioned 345 times i mean they made this the most important thing and and what does it bespeak what is the principle behind it the principle is 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 that we have to be righteous and the only way we can be righteous is to keep ourselves apart and separate and and the the one of the ways you do that well you know when i go out into the world i'm going to contract defilement because there'll be some gentiles around and some of those gentiles might have touched some of the things that i touched so therefore i have to wash my hands constantly I mean, it's this ocd delight is this hand-washing thing. But, but there's this fear that you're contaminated by, con- by um, contact with the world, and the incarnation blows that to pieces because Jesus is the only righteous one. God came into his own world. He was contaminated every time he touched anybody. It didn't matter how righteous you were under the law. Contamination happened because he's holy, which is something humans can never attain to. So the, 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 the idea of the incarnation into this world flies in the face of everything about defilement Jews would have believed. And so he goes on here, Mark does, to give us some of the background for why this is a, this, seeing the disciples eat with unwashed hands is a problem. He said, For the Pharisees and the Jews don't eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And even when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. You have to do them in a special way. It doesn't mean you you don't wash these things. It just means that, no, they they have to do it a certain way. And if they haven't done it that certain way, then it doesn't count. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Did you hear that? The traditions of the elders. They're acknowledging what this is, but what they believe about the traditions of the elders is this is the oral law they believe that was given to Moses. And then he communicated to Joshua, Joshua to the judges, and on down the years in an unbroken line. About 250-ish years later, it'll be codified for, for in writing. Before that, it had been told to Moses, and he was told not to write it down. But then the world became more complex, and Jews began to be spread over a wider and wider area, and so they felt there was a need to have it written down because oral transmission wasn't always possible. So <clears throat> Jesus responds 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You hear that? Jesus is, is saying the traditions that you're talking about is of man. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his mother or father, whatever you should have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. It's not good enough just to hear. You need to understand. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So it, that's a powerful statement. And it presages exactly what happens to Peter in Acts 10 when he gets the vision with all the unclean animals in it, and said, go and kill and eat. And he said, no, heaven forbid, I've never done anything like that in my life. And God says, I told you to do it. And so here, Jesus is, is setting the groundwork for the, the doing away with the dietary laws. The dietary laws, as well as the other ritual kinds of laws, such as the wearing of a shirt with two different kinds of um, cloth in it, as well as the, the restrictions that revolved around the temple, those things are all done away with. Those are the, the, the things that, that no longer matter because Jesus has replaced all of those things, and he has made all things clean by his presence. So it's, it's what comes out of a person that's what defiles him. What he's talking about is the things that we say, the things that we do. And those things are the things that defile us. We're not defiled by other people. We're defiled by ourselves. It's the sin in us that comes out that's the real problem. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside can't defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness. Does this all sound familiar? Like part of the ten? Uh, coveting, wick, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. I mean, you look at that list and it's like, okay, how many times did he need to convict me of sin in that one little passage? But Jesus is very clear what evil thoughts are and what, what defiles a person. And that's a good list. Paul picks up on some of these lists as well as he goes through things when he talks in Galatians. We're going to see it when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit versus the fruit of something else. And he says all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So when you say Jesus never said anything about such and such, well, go back and look at that list again. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery— those are separate. Adultery and sexual immorality, he, he separates. Covening, wickedness, deceit, sensuality even, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Those are, he, he, Jesus says those things are evil, and they defile a person. In the Galatians passage today, Paul, remember, is still defending his gospel, which is the true gospel, which is, is that, that salvation comes by faith, and the just are they're made just by faith. We are justified by faith, not by our works. We, we don't have good works. We have sin. 
and God can't overlook sin just to see the good works. No, both those things exist together, but the sin is covered by the blood of Jesus, and our faith in him is the way we receive that covering. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. It's the guardian that he's talking about here. I talked about this in a sermon right around Christmas time. Um, the, the guardianship here is a particular kind of guardian. So a Roman family would, would have a slave, and that slave would be then assigned to the child, the male child particularly, in the house. And, and that slave's job was to be the taskmaster over that child in all things so that that child's conduct would be shaped and molded into the, the image that the father wanted for that child. And it could be based in Stoic philosophy. It could be based in all kinds of things. But there would typically be a list of virtues that were, not to, they were, they were to be inculcated in that child. They were to form that child, that they should be evident in the behavior of this child. And so this guardian would have accompanied that child 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And he was very severe and he was very strict because this child had to be molded. He would accompany the child everywhere the child went, including places like school. Because what he was making sure was is that there was something there was not something being taught at school that was out of line with the values that the owner wanted his child to have. And so if there was anything said that was outside of those values and held up as a value, then it was the job of this guardian to correct that teaching for that child. And so it, this, this guardian was somebody who looked over a child 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's exactly what Paul says the law was. It was a guardian to make sure that we were the kind of people who were prepared to receive Jesus and be justified by faith in him. He says, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under that guardian. For Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. So we don't need a guardian because you know why? We have a Holy Spirit to lead us into that truth in the same way. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. That's how you get into the covenant God made with Abraham. Not by birth, he says, but, but by the Spirit and by being reborn into the kingdom of God, in the family of God. And that's how you become children of God and heirs to the promises given to Abraham through faith in that one offspring in Christ Jesus. We always, always, always need to be looking to him as the founder and the perfecter of our faith because like in that Isaiah lesson, we need to look at that thing that's eternal and set our hope on it. And the resurrection says Jesus is eternal. So the one man Whoever walked the face of this earth, in whom we can put our trust, is the one God resurrected from the dead, Christ Jesus.